This, you said statements either true or false. I gave you a statement, and you said it doesn't apply. Not two that. It's not so a, only two that statements would be either true or false. So is it true that I'm talking to you? Is it true? That is a true statement? I'm talking to you? Is that true? Yes. Okay. Is it true that babies exist? Um, well, I mean, how, babies how far exist. you go down the skeptical? Babies line, exist. Uh, Babies exist. Is that true or is it not the case that it's true? Uh, I, would, I mean, if you want to go down the, you know, if you want to be very strict about it, I would be uh, skeptical of that. Okay, we're done talking. There's okay. no sense in having a conversation with someone who, who just can't even recognize the statement that babies exist. Well, you're blah, blah, blah. You know, give me a break. We're never going to get anywhere. He's not, uh, he's not having a, a normal conversation. We're just going to move on to something else. It's ridiculous. Well, he's not interested in a conversation. He's no, no, he's just interested in arguing. Well, I am interested in infinitum. In That's all. I just know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just trapped him. No, find yeah. out. Dude, That's, that, I already decided. As soon as I said, you know, how is he going to answer this one? Babies exist. If he gives me a hard time, we're just moving on. You know? All right. John, you had something you want to say? I was going to say, he doesn't want to have a conversation. No. You asked him a very simple question. Do babies exist? And he has to dodge that? Well, I mean, if you Seriously. want to be very strict, we have to... No, it's a question simple question. It's, it's, it's like two plus two. It's two plus two. Okay? It's simple. It's simple. It's a simple freaking question. Come on. Okay, you're a freaking idiot. John's a little fired. I'm gonna up. lose it. I'm just gonna lose it. I'm just. I'm. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of these games. Oh, I don't know. There's no such thing as babies. We have to first. Uh, get, get well, the seriously. I, I, I kid you not, man. You guys will do anything you can to deny God. You will do anything. You will do anything to deny God. You guys are idiots. I don't deny God. So. Tell us what you really think, John. <laughs> oh, he's saying it. I'm telling you, man. I just I'm very oh. aware of Matt's uh, more trickery. All right. So there's there's no babies. This is Apologetics Live. Andrew Rappaport. Part of the Christian Podcast Community. All right, we are live. Apologetics Live coming to you from the internet. Uh, Matt Slick is, well, missing. Uh, he's going to be coming in late, which means if everybody fills the room, Matt won't be able to get in. Just a thought. We could have some fun, see him outside trying to get into the hangout, and we could just sit there and laugh. Uh, that was some classic, classic stuff in the intro <clears throat> from uh, years ago, about a year ago, with, that that was recorded. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we were hoping, we were hoping we had uh, an atheist that was going to come in. <sighs> but, no... No, he didn't. He he didn't show. So he's a no show, unfortunately. But we do. I brought some uh, I brought some big guns in till Mac gets here. Friend of mine, Jim Osmond, is in with us. We're going to we'll at least chat until Mac gets here. If you have some questions, you want to challenge us apologetically. You want some questions answered. You maybe got stuck. You were sharing the gospel with someone. Someone challenged you. You didn't have an answer. That's what this show is about. You can watch it live. You just go to apologeticslive.com. You can share that 
with that link with your friends. They can watch there. There is also a link to join that is there. So you can just go there, click the link to join. If you're already in, well, that page, just refresh it and you'll uh, you'll get that to be able to join us because I just put the link in there a few minutes ago. So this is a ministry of striving for eternity. We try to help answer your apologetics questions. We try to help you to be able to defend the faith. And we have, uh, well, Matt Slick is usually here. He's our resident uh, apologist that we have. He's with CARM, that's C-I-R-M, stands for Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, one of the largest, if not the largest, apologetics websites, probably definitely the oldest, I, I would think, as far as its size. Um, it, it's up there. It's a going. I, uh, it's over 25 years. Wow, a long time. Um, so with that, uh, Jim, you might as well, if, uh, you're unmuted, and we could at least chat about some of the things that you and I talked about that's going to be on a podcast that will drop tomorrow. Nope, sorry, Sunday. I'm mixing my days up. For some reason, I thought today was Saturday. That's really bad, I guess. Um, but uh, you and I did a podcast dealing with John MacArthur's interview mm-hmm. by Ben Shapiro. Yeah, and fascinating. It, how do you, well, okay, first off, John MacArthur is on a secular show, more of a political show. How do you think he did? Uh, what do you think was the the overall goal that he had in that interview? Well, it, I think probably his goal was obviously to communicate the gospel. That's what he sees every venue that he is on, whether it's Larry King or Ben Shapiro. He sees it as an opportunity to to present the gospel to whoever might be listening. And I was excited. I mean, thrilled when I saw that MacArthur was going to be on with Ben Shapiro because. I listened to Shapiro's podcast and I have for years uh, listened to his daily podcast as well as his Sunday conversation that he has. And I've heard him on there with Sam Harris and Tucker Carlson and uh, sometimes people that he totally disagrees with. And Shapiro is always really good about giving people that he completely disagrees with as much time as they want or need to answer the questions. And so I knew that it, he would not be he was not going to be combative or confrontational really his goals in those podcasts is to have a conversation with somebody that he disagrees with about a subject and to let them share their perspective. And and then uh, Shapiro, of course, will ask engaging questions. He does a, a good job with that. Often questions that are intended to be leading in a, in a Greg Kokel style, you know, like a, like a, an attorney, Ben Shapiro is trained as an attorney. So he, he obviously wants to take the conversation a certain direction, but I knew that MacArthur would have basically free reign to present whatever he wanted to present without any interruption from Ben Shapiro. And MacArthur did a great job doing that. Uh, his, uh, and the listening audience, man, Andrew, I don't know how many Ben Shapiro has to have thousands, if not tens of thousands of people listen to his podcast. So, well, he's got to have a lot when you consider that he is the, uh, I think for the 2018, the eight, and eighth or ninth most listened to podcast and there's about 660,000 podcasts. So, yeah. yeah, that means he's he's up there. But, yeah, th- the thing is, is that I think he MacArthur shared the gospel so much on that episode that on Ben Shapiro's podcast that next, I, I guess, the Monday or the Tuesday, he actually had to say something to his audience on why he didn't criticize MacArthur. He ends up saying he disagrees with MacArthur's view of Isaiah 53, but he said he doesn't get into those things in his, you know, when, when he's got a guest on, he's there for, to discuss with the guest, not to do a debate. 
Yeah. And it, you know, knowing that it was just great. MacArthur had free reign to share the gospel over and over and over, be able to explain the gospel to a Jewish person. I mean, <clears throat> if you want to know how to evangelize and witness to a Jewish person, my challenge is go find the John MacArthur Ben Shapiro interview. <clears throat> Just go search on YouTube for it and you will see how to do that. I mean, they get into political issues. They get into moral issues. But over and over again, you see John MacArthur bringing up the gospel, going through all of Isaiah 53, explaining how that is fulfilled in Christ. Just over and over. <clears throat> it was brilliant. It was it was wonderful to watch. It was it was it was seemed customized to Ben Shapiro. Um, I said I was sitting there watching it with my daughter, and uh, I at there's one point where I said, either John MacArthur has listened to Ben Shapiro argue against Jesus being the Messiah, or somebody has told John MacArthur, who listens to Shapiro's podcast, exactly what Shapiro believes. Uh, either that or the Spirit of God was there in customizing John MacArthur's words for Ben Shapiro because he, just in presenting the gospel, he presented the arguments in such a way as to basically attack the presuppositions that Shapiro has given on his own podcast in the past because uh, he has made the argument, Shapiro has, he has made the argument that Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He was just a rabbi and he was a good teacher and it was years, generations after the events of the first century, that Jesus's second and third generation followers invented his claims to deity when they wrote down uh, some things in the Gospels. And so that is how he has argued that Jesus uh, Christ was not the Messiah and not divine. And MacArthur went right to the heart of that, almost as if he has heard, heard Shapiro's perspective on that, or as if the Spirit of God was just using him because he, he, he basically nailed those, those presuppositions. He just he, he destroyed them just in presenting the gospel to Shapiro. He undid all of Shapiro's arguments. It, it was brilliantly done. Well, I think, I think what it is is that Ben Shapiro is not saying anything that an Orthodox Jewish person wouldn't say. And so, obviously, MacArthur, if he doesn't know Ben Shapiro's arguments, knows the arguments that Jewish people would make. And yeah. I thought, you know, it was brilliant. You and I never didn't have time to address this on the podcast episode on the rap report. Uh, that I should mention that was the podcast that's, that is. You could search for rap report. That's rap with two Ps. But if you could just go look for Andrew Rappert's rap report, we're going to deal with going through some of that. And there's some there were some controversial things that MacArthur did say. Those were the issues that we were really trying to, to address. But there were some things that really we, we there was a whole lot we couldn't say just didn't have time. One of them was, you know, he brought up the fact that the Jewish view that Jesus was a good person. <clears throat> he was just a, a good man. MacArthur dealt with that beautifully. Like As you said, it was like he knew the arguments that were going to be made and took them away before they could get made. And I don't know if he was anticipating to get some pushback. I mean, he gets a little bit of pushback uh, from Larry King but usually off air. And so I don't know if it was because of that or what, but he definitely was looking to address some of the typical arguments like, well, Jesus was just a good man. And he says, you know, Jesus couldn't be just a good man. He couldn't be because he claimed to be God. Yeah. And, and therefore no good man can do that. No good. He, man. he made the liar, Lord lunatic, a liar, lunatic, Lord syllogism. He didn't spell it out exactly like that, but he walked through that argument. That's right. That's right. 
And, you know, I think that it was brilliant the way he did it. It was brilliant the way he he addressed the issues and he did it. And this is the thing. He did it in a very conversational way. It wasn't like he was combative. It wasn't like it was argumentative. And I mean, one thing that was very interesting at the beginning of that interview was Ben Shapiro's folks, the people who work for him, were excited to have MacArthur there. And he said they've had plenty of guests and no one had the excitement that John MacArthur had with the group that works for Ben Shapiro. I find that very interesting because it says that Ben Shapiro must be surrounded by uh, good Christians. I mean, Christians that understand solid doctrine that they're excited for MacArthur. They actually said there was a line of people uh, to talk to and, and meet John MacArthur. So that's really just kind of interesting with all the guests he's, he's had in there to have that kind of response. Uh, I just find that I, I find it interesting. I think that maybe there's some, something there we can see as a testimony to uh, really to where he may be at. Yeah. It does tell us something about who might be surrounding him. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's, until we, until we get some folks in and folks, if you want to join now is actually the best time to join. It's always good to join these. We get a whole bunch of people that come later in the show and ask questions. And sometimes we don't get a chance to get to you. It is always best to come in early, get your question. You, you'll get a better chance of getting on the air, but I'm going to deal with something. Matt and I have one of our many Facebook groups that we have is called Christian apologetics. And we have a, a troll in there. An internet troll, for folks who don't know, is someone that pretends like they want to have dialogue when they're really not interested in it. They're interested in attacking and making whatever arguments they want to make and claims. And and so he, this is a guy who's a, an atheist. He he put this out, um, and it, it was just an interesting. Uh, let's see if I could share my screen. I forget how to do that. Let's see. So where is that? I'll share this real quick so you can see it. Um, and so what you end up seeing here is this is his the thing he says. He's got this list of things, and he's, he claims that it's a genuine question that he wants the answer to. And so here's the question. You have to answer one through seven. Number one, I know for certain God exists. Number two, can't be certain, but I highly believe in God. Number three, I am very, uns- or I'm very uncertain, but I inclined to believe in God. Number four, the probability of God's existence is 50%. Number five, I don't know if God exists, but I tend to be skeptical. Number six, I can't know for certain, but I think it's highly improbable. Number seven, I know for certain that God doesn't exist. Now, he wanted to get a response to that. He wanted to know where people were in a Christian apologetics group, <clears throat> where people fall on that line. So it was kind of an interesting thing. I, I guess he wasn't expecting my answer, maybe, because he really didn't like it very much. But my answer <clears throat> uh, is, I responded and said, to answer your question, Paul, you know for certain God exists. The difference between us is that you suppress the truth and I do not. The proof that you, the proof of this is that you spend all your time in here trying to convince yourself God doesn't exist. I think that this is a way to answer. And, and we, you know, going back to what we talked about in the podcast with, you know, 
the, the Ben Shapiro interview of MacArthur. Ben Shapiro uh, has him on, and MacArthur was answering Ben Shapiro's questions very much with a presuppositional way. He was not taking things out. Actually, what we could even play. Let me play a clip of MacArthur. Uh, here's Here was one of the clips of why there has to be a God. Why should they take any of this seriously and not just think, okay, it's a compilation of various texts by various old people over time. Why, why should they take the Bible seriously in the first place? Well, I think the Bible is its own defense. Um, I've never defended the Bible. I've just preached it. And then here is another question that got asked. And again, a nice, good presuppositional answer. What do you think is the, the key distinguishing factor between the philosophy of Christianity and the philosophy of Judaism? Well, first of all, I don't like to talk about it as a philosophy. Um, I'd rather talk about it as a revelation uh, because it's divine. You see how in both of those, and this is a good thing for folks who are doing apologetics to, to be aware of this. <clears throat> Notice how MacArthur, in both of those cases, he's asked the question. The first one is, well, why should we take the Bible seriously? He, he just brushes that off. This isn't an issue of where people, whether they take it seriously. This is a divine thing. Well, what about the philosophy? No, no, it isn't a philosophy. This is biblical truth. This is divine truth. It comes from God, and therefore, that is the authority he places on it. Okay, and so what you end up seeing here is, as we look at what MacArthur was was doing, is he's giving a way of answering these things presuppositionally. Now, there's some folks who have some wrong views of what presuppositional apologetics is. For many people, presuppositional apologetics, they think, is to ignore all evidence, to deny that any evidence and just either quote scripture or to to just, you know, well, some people will just sit there and think that the way to do it is to ask, you know, do you, can you know everything for sure? And if they say no, then you say, well, see, then God must exist. And they don't explain it sometimes, unfortunately. But presuppositional apologetics is really quite simple. It is the fact that there's two presuppositions that we hold to that we that we don't try to prove because you cannot prove them. And that is God exists and he has spoken. Why can't you prove them? Anything that you could use to try to argue to prove God's existence or to prove God's word is actually God's word would have to be greater than God and greater than the Bible because it has to be it would have to be a greater source the ultimate source for everything is god now we can we can sit easily and we could take uh if we want we can end up taking people who want to argue that um they want to argue that god is um that god's you know needs to be proven you need to have some argument you could take someone that says that God does not exist. I can sit with them and go through simple things that show that their views are impossible to be thrown. Matt Slick likes to do this with the tag argument. You could look at things like the laws of logic. You could look at things like morality. And you end up seeing that there has to be an absolute universal source. And the only possible one is God himself. Where do we get morality from? We get that from the nature of God. So the question gets asked, why is rape wrong? 
And and people will give different answers. Jimmy, you know, you've gotten some answers, but the typical ones I hear is harm. That does harm to people. You're harming another person. Um, but if you think about it, if we say, okay, we do harm. So if I remove the harm done, then rape wouldn't be wrong. So that could be removed. There was a, a, a dentist who had raped several women and had them when they were under anesthesia. They were not even aware. They didn't even know that there was any harm done. They didn't even know that it had occurred. It wasn't until one woman had realized, well, she knew she hadn't been with anybody and she was pregnant. Something happened, worked it out to the only possible case. And sure enough, paternity tests proved that to be true. Now, there were other women that also were in a similar situation when it came out. And the interesting thing, prior to the knowledge of the rape, they did not suffer the effects of rape, of someone that's been raped. They didn't have the trauma. After they found out, that's when they realized. So in other words, the harm was in finding out that you were raped, not the actual rape. So then rape wouldn't be wrong. It would be telling people that rape is wrong. And when you argue this way, what people will end up very quickly doing, very quickly, is go to consent. Well, that wasn't consented. Now, I don't know why consent somehow makes things morally right or wrong, because if you think about it, if consent is required, then every parent is morally wrong when they tell their children to do something and the child disagrees. The child's not consenting. In fact, you may have to consent to obeying speed limits. Is that morally wrong? Is consent something that makes something morally right and wrong? You see, consent is not something that you can use as an argument for morality because there's plenty of cases where we do things not with consent, but because an authority says so, we don't consent to it, and yet it's not morally wrong. So when you get to how would a Christian, how should a Christian answer the question of why rape is wrong? Very simple. Rape is wrong because God is not a rapist. You see, we get our morality from the nature of God. So the fact that we have with God that he says something doesn't make it right and wrong. This is to take away the euphorthrow dilemma that people say, well, God says it's wrong and that's what makes it. No, no, no. It's not wrong because God says so. It's wrong because it is not within the nature of God. It's not God's nature. That's what makes it wrong. Jim, have you, you've, you've done a fair bit of evangelism and run into people. When people try to argue that there is no absolute morality, how do you usually try to argue? Uh, usually I, 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 I try, try and ask, ask them, them if certain, certain things, things that, that everybody, everybody would, would agree, agree is morally wrong, um, if they would object to these things being morally wrong, torturing two-year-olds for fun, um, rape, um, murdering people, uh, the, the things that with the big ones, you know, the ones that everybody would recognize, this is obviously uh, morally reprehensible. And you try to agree, uh, get them to agree that, yeah, I recognize that those things are wrong. But then, then you always got to go back to the grounding question because we all recognize that there is a moral standard. Uh, the atheists agree with us when they say that there's a moral standard, but what they cannot do is ground that moral standard in something transcendent beyond their own preferences or their own, uh, or their own ideology, their own thinking. Uh, so I, I try and get them to say, why is that wrong? Is it always wrong under what circumstances? Is it wrong because you just think it's wrong? 
if you are an atheist, then give me some re- some way of grounding your moral your moral enterprise that is outside of and beyond you. Because if it's just wrong because you think it's wrong, then um, then I could say that well, the rape isn't wrong because I don't think it's wrong. So you you have to get them to try and ground. You have to try to get them to ground that morality, and then when they try to do so without God in the picture. Uh, that is when I find that it's easy to take them right back to showing that they basically have both feet firmly planted in midair, as uh, Greg Kolko would like to say. Yeah, because if you if you remove the absolute nature of morality, you end up with nothing. I mean, nothing is now wrong. And you could, you know, you can very easily go through and work through the issue of the Holocaust, Nazi Germany, because the question is, was that wrong? Now, for folks who actually studied much on the Holocaust, when the Germans soldiers who were involved in the concentration camps had been captured and went on trial, one of the arguments they made is our society said this is true. Our society agreed this is moral. Therefore, you can't impose your morality on us and tell us we're wrong. And the appeal that people made was that there was an absolute standard. There, there's they, what they did was wrong, and everybody can know that. That was basically the argument that got made, and that's why they ended up having the trial. Now, the way that most people will argue, if you say that, well, take whatever the issue is, <clears throat> people will say, well, it's it's moral because the society says that it is. And when they say that, you just can easily go to Nazi Germany. So was it right? You can ask the question, was the United States and Britain and all the other nations in the accesses, you know, in the allies, were they all wrong when they went up against Germany? Was it wrong to attack Germany based on the things they were doing? Now, a person that wants to say that morality is something that's subjective ends up having to argue that, no, what they did wasn't wrong, that what they, you know, because their their society accepted it. But they know they shouldn't say that. They know it was wrong. And so what do they end up doing? They start trying to find wiggle room. They try to find some other way to argue their way around this. And what ends up happening when they do that is you slowly start to see if you take this piece by piece, you will start to see that ultimately they're going to get down to might makes right. Okay. They're going to get to, well, society decided. Yeah. But in that, in the society in uh, Nazi Germany, there were 11 million people that were murdered, 6 million Jewish people. And they obviously didn't agree. So why is it that the Nazis were, they get to decide what's morally right. Fair question. The answer usually is that they got elected. The people voted for them. They put them in power. So it's the fact that they're in power. Oh, uh, yes. They will, you can walk them down. They always get to that point. It's, it's because they're in power. And really what that comes down to is might makes right. And when they get to that point, once you get someone that says might makes right, I usually ask, so you would then accept that rape is okay. And they say, no, they never want to say that. But if you think about it, isn't that what rape is? Rape is a might makes right. If the person doing the raping is stronger, then the rape occurs. If the person who's being victimized is stronger, then the rape isn't going to happen. It is always a might makes right. 
And so the thing when we look at the arguments that they make to try to say that morality is somehow subjective and not objective, that it's something that we can decide, it's not an absolute universal standard that comes from the nature of God, they say that because of one simple thing. If morality is absolute, they're accountable to God. That's really what it comes down to. And when we take a presuppositional argument, we don't give up the fact that God exists. We don't try to argue for, let me prove that God exists. Let me prove that the Bible is is true. The, the Bible is true for a very simple reason, because the author, God, cannot lie. That's Titus 1-2. And when you have someone that cannot lie, who is good and kind and faithful and true, then when he says something, it has those qualities to it. And therefore, anything that God writes down would be true. And so God used men, to he wrote through men so that we have the Bible. There's nothing we can use to try to prove the Bible is God's word. I mean, you can look at prophecies. Those are fine. That's a great, that's the thing that, that I ended up coming to accept that the New Testament was written by God was because I saw all the fulfilled prophecy. You can look at the prophecies to see that Jesus was prophesied, that he would come, that he would be God, that he would reign, uh, that he would die for his people. You can look at all those prophecies and see that he fulfilled them. Now, those are evidences that we can use, but I use those evidences to support the presupposition that I take without question. God exists. He has spoken. You see, I'm not going to put God on trial as if we have to prove him. No, we're the ones that get put on trial. And the fact is, many of the professing atheists, and why do I say professing atheists? Because, well, going back to that photo that I showed, that not really a meme, but that chart that the guy put up, every single human being, according to Romans 1, every single human being knows that God exists though some suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And so uh, with that, we got some folks that, that came in. Uh, I don't, I'm looking to see, I think, Vince, you came in first, and then James, then John. I don't know if you guys have anything you want to ask, any questions you have, or if you even want to just chat more about presuppositional apologetics and what we were started with. So I, I've, unmute, I've uh, brought all of you guys in. So uh, Larry just came in, so I'll bring Larry up. So if any of you guys, what do you guys think about uh, the arguments that, that made? I know you guys all agree with presuppositional apologetics, so I don't think you're going to, at least those mentioned. I think one of the things I want to make sure recently that we definitely include on our presuppositional apologetics is to always make sure we start with the gospel and end with the gospel. I think sometimes we forget to, that's the main focus. And so I've just been conscious of that lately. Uh, that I make sure that the gospel is front and center and in, in, in the in the pre-sub apologetic because that's really the power to you know convert people. Okay. I didn't hear a lot of what y'all were talking about. Came in late, so I'm not yeah. too sure what y'all are. Well, you're not the only one that came in late. Actually, someone else just got in here. Uh, it, could that be? Oh, look at that! That is the slick one himself is actually here. Look at him. The slick one, that's right. <laughs> All hail the slick. <laughs> no, I had a doctor's appointment, and uh, here I am, 
traffic so, coming home and all of that. You missed you missed the intro, and so did John. But I I played that that clip from about a year ago, Matt, where we no. had the guy that came in and said that he wasn't sure if babies exist, <laughs> and John lost it. That was that's a that's one of my favorite. Well, we just said, well, you're one, so that's over. Yeah. Um, I am almost tempted to do something, Matt, just for the value. I I was just sent that video, and someone said that they they were given permission for me to uh, to show the video, but I haven't I haven't even watched it. I don't know if we should just play it, but it is classic. What's it about? Uh, actually, you might have been there. The, it, it started. This is it started from a an African American friend of mine, Cliff, and I know you've met him, but you probably don't remember him because well, you don't remember anybody, but. <laughs> Cliff was telling me that we were talking about different preaching styles, things like that. And Cliff said that when you're in the African-American churches, you could be preaching a nursery rhyme <clears throat> and right. people would amen it as long as you have the cadence down and you have that right. right. And I said, yeah. no way. No, like you can't. He's like, oh, yeah, nursery rhyme. And we were at this missionary housing place and he literally starts doing little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds away and, and he's doing it with this cadence and no joke. This woman is walking past and just goes, amen, brother, preach it. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So we actually got him to, to video him doing, uh, preaching a nursery. Yeah. <laughs> so I should, I should see if I could pull this down and we can maybe play that. We'll have to see. Uh, okay, I'll see if I can add it to my Dropbox. That might take some time. So, Matt, you're you're getting older. Uh, oh, here we go. I I don't know how long this is. Uh, should we play this, Matt? Yeah. All right. Let's let's play this. Let me uh, share the screen here. I don't know how long this is, but I hope I'm gonna. Let's see. Cliff gave permission for you to use this. Uh, just want to make sure I, I just want to make sure I said, <laughs> make sure you didn't say, you know, uh, he said, uh, Cliff didn't want to be seen as clowning around or disrespecting God. He trusts that you will not use it in that manner. So I'll say it this way that, yeah, I mean, this is, this is not Cliff clowning around. It's not Cliff. It's actually Cliff doing something that I think is helpful for, for us. It was for me to realize that there are people can be deceived just in the way that this cadence works, that people get into an emotional response system. This is very much like what Charles Finney had done. But let, let's play this. Turn it up. Yeah, can't hear it. Okay. Let me see. Maybe the, uh, maybe the, I know it's technical and you're, you're tech challenged. Yeah, I'm not. I just, I'll turn up that. Okay. How's that? A little better. You can't hear that? No. 
It's all right. All right. So we we were just talking about. He was saying the amen. So let's see if I turn it up a little more. See if you get in there. Well, if, if there's a URL on YouTube, just give it to us. We can go to. Uh, that. And the reality is, many in the world are following after things that lead them to death, right. thinking that they're believing the truth. Right. Like Little Miss Muffin being preaching at church, and people will say, <laughs> <laughs> "Amen." That's actually a true story, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we got him to do Little Miss <laughs> He actually was doing that in a building, and someone walked by and said, "Hey, did!" And I just looked at him and said, "No." All right. <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, he he actually goes through and and does this whole thing of uh, where he he preaches a nursery rhyme, and and uh, I mean, it, when you get that cadence going, and Matt, let's talk about this. Let me ask you this: um, Charles Finney known as one of the the great preachers uh, of his time but unfortunately of, unfortunately so so why do you say unfortunately and what is it that Finney's he, a heretic okay so the theology yeah theology he's a pelagian and works righteousness and sinless perfectionism blah 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 okay anyway yeah so what was it that made that got Charles Finney to get so much attention that people, that it was referred to as the Finney. Great Awakening. Don't, you don't know the story. Finney. He had a shark fin hat. Finney. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's how he got people. Well, he, he, he was known for using emotionalism. He was? I didn't know. Okay, yeah. No, he, he was, well, he's the one that Created the 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 uh, thing they called it called it the anxious bench to get people to an emotional state that they would come forward. First, you got to raise your hand, then you got to stand up, then you got to walk out of the aisle, and then you got to walk down the aisle, and, and all these little steps to get people into an emotional frenzy. And and the music was a big part. You you see this nice. with uh, Billy Graham, music big part. You see this also Benny Hinn. Uh, you know, uh, any of those assembly of God and, and Pentecostal churches that's what I grew up in, that's what they use to, to really bring out emotions, music, big time. Yep, yep, along with all the um, uh, Jesus culture stuff, and yeah, just all that stuff. I mean, they, they all bring everything out as far as music goes, that they play hours upon hours of, of music to get you into a some kind of a trance. Yeah, yeah, and it's quite scary the way they do this. Yeah, that's the kind of um, atmosphere that I was saved in, and whenever I realized the error is I had to examine myself for months to, uh, to make sure that just, just out of fear that my conversion wasn't false. Same here, man. Yeah, and, you know, we have uh, we have uh, Justin Peters' pastor in here, Jim Osmond. Hey, and, Jim. You know, and Justin always says, that, uh, you know, what you end up having is, just as I say that, Jim Husband dropped. <laughs> but, you know, what you end up having is, uh, Justin Peters always says that you can't have the Benny Hins and, the, and all those guys without the music. He said they'll, they'll go like three hours of trying to create that emotional frenzy state and get people into. I think, it, it, look, it only takes me three minutes to create a, an emotionally frenzy state. 
Yes, but that's one of anger and frustration that people have. Yeah, lynching and things <laughs> like that. Yeah, but it's still, you know, like you're still doing. I thought I thought you were going to say something like in somewhere in the bathroom. <laughs> I can do that too. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. Uh, all right. So, are there any unbelievers in here? We do not have any unbelievers in here. What uh, are you guys talking about presuppositionalism? We're talking about presuppositional apologetics. Yeah. I want to bring something up. You ready? Yeah. All right. Now, so uh, I guess all of us in here know a little bit about theology, and um, including uh, Andrew. And uh, Ooh. well, I, you know, I, he, did say, he did say a little. <laughs> a little. That's right. A little theology. Um, Here's something I've been thinking about recently. It's not earth-shattering, maybe. Uh, here's a verse. Where is it? Hey, Matt, actually, why, before you do that, can you do me a favor while you're doing that? Can you also put the Apologetics Live on the homepage? Ah. Thanks. Sure. You mean late. <clears throat> put the words there. So one of the things I've been thinking about lately is the issue of faith. And... I was reading, I have devotions, I, I read in bed a lot, and um, I was reading through E.M. Bounds on prayer, and he was saying some things about faith that were really impressive, and it kind of convicted me, and it got me thinking about some other stuff as well. Now, um, I'm gonna, I'll read some of the highlights that he does here in a second, but... Uh, Let's see, get this to going here to that. Well, uh, you know, let's, 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 there's one thing you said that I'm confused with. You said you read before you go to bed. You kind of have in a bed. You have in to bed, do. You, have to, read. You, you get into bed and it takes you a long time to fall asleep. I, I, Unlike I some people I know, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that. I know. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so for the, the backstory there. <laughs> ben, I'm focus on this first, so I can get the uh, links up for the. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the story while you get the links up. So Matt and I were traveling together, and, and Matt is like explaining the routine he's got to do so he could finally fall asleep. About an hour and a half, I got to do this, that's it, you know. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, well, good night. <laughs> and I'm just out. And yeah, he's I, out in like two minutes. <laughs> and I get up in the morning. I'm having I'm having breakfast with our host, and we're sitting there and. Matt comes out, just looks at, at our host, looks at me, and goes, I hate you. <laughs> and the host is just like, what? <laughs> and he's like, man, he just comes in. It's like, good night. And he's just out. Two minutes. Yeah. He's sleeping. <laughs> well, I, I just, just assume you're used to turning your brain off. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, I'm almost done here. Participate and uh, and apologetics live Thursday night. To uh, let's see if this works. I'm doing it quickly. Okay, it's up now. Uh, I want to find some of the stuff he's saying because one of the things he said caught my interest. And you know, you guys know how sometimes you can hear something. And it just kind of echoes for some reason. Uh, <clears throat> it's only see. because I have a hollow head. <laughs> that that works. Yeah, that's true. Now, come I on. haven't experienced that, Matt. Maybe it's just you. Oh, I definitely experienced that. Yeah. 
Uh, let's see. I, I, I get a lot of things highlighted, but let me just read through a few until we find something you'll see. But a faith which believes that the things which he saith shall come to pass. That's the kind of faith we need. Faith must be definite, specific, an unqualified, unmistakable request for the things asked. Faith gives birth to prayer. Now, that was, that was interesting. And faith is humble and it's persevering. And the lack of faith lies at the root of all poor praying. And I was like, you know, that, that's, that's true. It, it really is true, this issue of prayer and faith in us. Now, because the reason I'm talking about this is because, well, you know, let's talk about communicatio idiomatum and how it relates to imputation justification with the, the issue of propitiation out of Halosmos and 1 uh, John 2.4. We can talk, or 1 John 2.2, we can talk about this for a while. No problem. And so the intellect, uh, you know, is trained. But what about our faith? Um, and one of the things that, that he said, you know, faith needs to be cultivated. Faith needs to be, be um, developed, which reminded me of George Mueller. But one of the things he said, okay, getting out of the point is, and I can't find the exact quote, that one of the jobs of the pastor, so what do you guys think of this? One of the jobs of the pastor is to increase the faith or work to increase the faith of the congregation. So faith in God, you know, and more faithfulness to, to God. What do you guys think of that? Uh, well, I think definitely in the sense of uh, God, uh, the preaching of God's word being sanctifying in that sense, uh, sanctification, uh, the more we're conformed more to the image of Christ, hopefully the greater our prayer life becomes as our faith increases through that sanctification. All right, so... Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it will be done. So what do you think he meant by that? Sorry, I was on mute. Say that again. I found it the quote, incidentally. Um, let me read the quote. Let's see. The pastor, oh, you slime ball. Did you guys just hear him call me a slime ball? I just, yeah, for the record, harsh on you. I know. I I get this all the time. So no, I call you a jerk. You're taking out the trash. I call, so. I call <laughs> you a jerk. <laughs> Are you not a slime ball? Well, no, I'm a jerk. But why am I a jerk? Why is that, Matt? Let's let's focus on this. The pastor who succeeds in changing uh, his people from a, pr a prayerless to a prayerful people has done a greater work than, than did Augustus in changing a city from wood to marble. Talk about Rome. And after all, this is the prime work of the preacher. The prime work of the preacher. That's what kind of got me. Well, now, there's a little bit of something else I'm talking about here on the very issue of nature of faith. But what do you think of that statement? The prime work of the preacher. I don't know that I'd agree with that. It's the prime work. I think that well, we end up seeing Acts chapter six when they are selecting deacons. There's two things the the pastors should be doing: the preaching of the word of God, the study of God's word, and, and prayer. It doesn't say leading people in prayer, though. I would think that being a, a, an example is important. Um. So I'm just, as I think about it, I don't know that I'd agree it's the prime work, but I do think that I agree with the emphasis he's saying in 
helping to lead people to pray, because I think this is a big thing that is lacking in the church today. I think that we don't have people in churches today that are really mindful of prayer. Um, I think there's more to prayer than what we we realize. Oh, yeah. Well, Ian Bounds... um, I'm trying to look for, I mean, the book I have is, is I, I have the complete works and it's like this thick. Um, right. That's what I'm reading out of. Six, six volumes that he wrote on prayer. Very detailed work. I, I recommend that to anybody who. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Really wants to dig into prayer and understanding it because that, that work is phenomenal in, in yeah, going is. through and explaining the, the, just what's going on and. Uh, so much of prayer that we don't think about. Well, the thing I'm concerned about is um, prayerlessness. Now, we pray as Christians. I'm on you slime ball. Not you. I'm doing the. I'm fixing you something. Again. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Um, as Christians, we pray. And I'm reminded of uh, some stories. Um, George Mueller, the orphan king of the 1800s. And what he would do, uh, he had a methodology, not that it's a formula, but he just had an approach before God. He, he just wouldn't do anything unless he was bathed in prayer and, and stuff like that. And there was a, a, an instance where, where uh, the orphans in England, um, 1800s, electricity had been invented by that time, but they didn't have it in there had kerosene lamps that they were using in this gigantic mm-hmm. wood building. And the uh, the central heating system was on the brink of just failing. And they didn't want it to fail because if it did, the room would get cold, pneumonia, uh, and then you know, what are they going to do? And so they had to run through various scenarios to solve this problem. And I will, I'll skip all the, the logistics, but they concluded that the on, he concluded the only thing that could be done was to pray when the uh, furnace had to be scheduled to be shut down instead of break, because if it was broke, it'd be a lot worse. Scheduled to have it shut down and fixed, repaired. They'd be down for a day or two or three or something like that, two or three days. And they didn't want the kids to get pneumonia during that period of time. The only thing they could conclude was to pray and ask God to stop the cold wind blowing from the north, this was in England, and to send a warm wind from the south because there were no other options. And since he had done this ministry because he felt it was what God was wanting him to do, and because it was God's calling, then it wasn't his problem anymore. He was just the facilitator of the will of God. And so he just went in prayer, as he did daily, twice, three times a day, and said, Lord, this is the only option I can see. This is, you know, with respect, he's saying this is your concern, your endeavor, it's your your problem, you're going to solve it. And so the people gathered to um, <clears throat> to shut the furnace off, and the cold wind from the north stopped blowing, and a warm south wind blew. And he prayed for two things, that and that the men would have a mind to work. And so they shut it down on a Saturday, they worked all night, to the evening and there were time to go time to go home and so he asked the foreman if he would ask the men to come back early on Sunday to work and he and they, the foreman asked every single one of them and every single one of them declined everyone said no 
Instead, every one of them worked through the night. And they got the furnace fixed. And when they turned it on, the cold wind from the north started blowing again. So that's an instance of faith. Peter walked on water. And, and Jesus said uh, in other places, you know, be it done according to your faith. It's been something I've been thinking about recently. You know, you've got the doctrine of the hypostatic union down, the Trinity down, but not this doctrine of faith. And, uh, you know, we talk about apologetics. We talk about various things. We try and reach people, connect with them. And I can't help but wonder sometimes if we're missing. I'm just thinking out loud. If we're missing a significant part of the boat, so to speak, by not uh, dwelling in prayer far more than we ought to be, maybe because we don't have enough faith in prayer. And so faith and prayer are, are related. I'm just thinking yeah. out loud. What do you guys think of no, this? I, I agree. I mean, you know, a lot, what a lot of people don't know about George Mueller, they think he was some man who had this supernatural faith that he was special in some way. And yet, if you actually read his autobiography, you read the introduction, he says in there that the reason he wanted to do an orphanage is he wanted to live his life completely on faith to serve God. Yep. And he wanted some way to display that. And what he said was back then there was just thousands and thousands and thousands of orphans. And he thought that this would be the greatest way to glorify God, to put God's on, on, on display for people to see how he will answer when you live by faith. Now, there is a, a point, I think, you know, where some people try to test God and there's, I think there's a difference there. So I would right. be warning with this. Yeah. Right? You don't say, well, if God, you know, if God exists, he'll, he's going to do this. Or, you know, God, I'm going to say. <clears throat> Not an insolent test, but a submissive test. Correct. <clears throat> Correct. I mean, you, you end up seeing throughout the, his autobiography, there's a ton of things that happened that he didn't know how God was going to answer. But he just said, we're going to trust that God's going to answer. Yeah. There's no food. <clears throat> And all of a sudden, so a bread truck breaks down, a milk truck breaks down. I mean, right. time and time again, things like that would happen. Right outside the orphanage, and then say, hey, we've got to get rid of the food. You want it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the guy doesn't know that broke down. He didn't know that they didn't have anything. He, he, he was unaware of that. You know, he didn't know that all of a sudden they're, you know, going to be dealing with the fact that uh, these kids are going hungry. Right. Uh, so that becomes a thing that we end up seeing, you know, and he really was trying to, to show what happens when you live by faith. And he was a man of prayer. That's for sure. And I think prayer, look, Matt, you've done tons of conferences. Have you ever done a conference on the topic of prayer? No. <clears throat> yeah. I've, I've never really, I mean, there are some, but you don't see those type of conferences really being populated. People won't go to a conference on prayer. No, because uh, prayer, prayer is a di very difficult thing. And uh, for someone like me with a little bit of Asperger's and, <clears throat> and stuff, I'll, I'll be praying for one minute. Next thing you know, I'm surfing. And then two minutes later, oh, wait a minute. That's right. I'm on my knees here praying. And so I have that problem of concentration and things like that. Yeah. And I know that it's difficult for others as well. You know, our minds wander. But we've got a, 
It's like the Spirit is just saying there's something more about this issue of faith. Yeah. faith prayer is important. We know that. But faith is the engine of prayer. You know, it's when we are praying, we are, I like to call it faithing. We are in that position and condition of faith in an ongoing place and time. And and I, I, somebody else, something I read or something, something about the issue of when you pray, you have to have and you should have in your heart the intention of not sincerity for the sake of sincerity, but you don't want to have a hypocritical attitude in that you just go through the process of praying because you're supposed to do it, and then you move on because that's pharisaical prayer. And it was this discussion was on the nature and the essence of the condition of the heart in a humble state before the Almighty God as we lay our concerns before him. And in this, there has to be a time of, of expectant, humble trust in him. And I think there's something to the very nature of being in that state with God that somehow moves things, moves him, moves whatever, empowers. That's all this is the wrong terminology. I'm going to find better ways to say it. Well, one thing that I learned over the years in prayer, well, a couple of things. One thing that I've learned is I keep a notebook when I'm either that or my, my phone just for prayer, just for when I get those distractions, think of something. And you know, my mind wants to, to stay there. Um, what I've learned to do is just Jot it down. Get back to it later. Not even bother. Just I'll get. Yeah, that's a good idea. And and I I know that I'm going to do that. So I'm just not going to. I'm not even going to think about it till later. Later I'll deal with it. And that that's one thing. The other thing that I've done that I find very helpful is uh, just to when I'm when I'm having prayers to have I have an app on my phone, and so what it does is it it allows me to just check off when I'm done praying for something. So if I end up having something happen, I get distracted or something happens and I, I have to, you know, t- step away from that time of prayer. I can go right back and I know where I left off. Uh, I know what things I haven't prayed for that day. That's on my list. But one of the things I'm horrible at, and this is what I think you're really getting to Matt is um the one thing that I'm really, that's really hard is the fact of just having that meditation. And this is what I think is different. This is what uh, the pastor of my church focuses on a lot is this idea of just the Old Testament term of meditation where you're, you're it's basically dealing with how cows eat where they, they regurgitate it and eat it back up and, and just keep doing that. And it's the idea that we just keep going over something over and over and over and just being quiet. I mean, we live in such a busy, constant, especially with the technology, constantly having something that we, we have to have before us, keeping us always on the go. To just sit in silence is hard. And I mean, try yeah, it. it. Just try it. Just, just spend I, I'm time. A, Jesus, Jesus himself said, go to your closet. <laughs> pray <laughs> i mean i think that's that's rather significant for us to do and practice is to get away you know maybe not physically go in the closet but still find the seclusion find a place where you can kind of 
get away from all the distractions and uh, and just really focus. Um, I was going to say that, Andrew, you also give a great tip when it comes to your um, uh, your little cheat sheets that you have. You have one of them is the attributes of God and that you go through those uh, in your prayer time and, and really reflect on on the natures of God and, and the attributes of God, of who he is. Um, but also, uh, you guys just kind of gave me an idea. You two, you should uh, get together and, and write a book together. And and Matt kind of already did the um, uh, the title of it already called Faithing. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. Well, there's something about faithing because you know doctrinally speaking, faith is only as good as who you put it in, and so we have to define who God is to properly have faith in Him, and that can only be understood and received through the revelation of Scripture, which we go to prayerfully as we ask Him to unfold that Word in our hearts and our minds, and then as we encounter God in a more personal relationship uh, through the word, you know, by the revelation of his knowledge that's revealed, we learn about him, then we, we need to go into prayer to experience him. But being in that presence of God, practicing the presence of God, that's the title of, a, of an old book, to practice the presence of God, and dealt with the issue of prayer, meditation time with the Lord. And a lot of this is just lost in our busy uh, schedules and things like this. And I can't help but wonder, and I'm going to use myself as an example, uh, of the arrogance that uh, someone like myself routinely exhibits in my, in my own heart in that I have knowledge, so therefore I don't need to go in prayer because I can solve this problem on my own effort. This has been a downfall that I've had to deal with over the years, <clears throat> and it's just what it is. Um, it's not as bad as it sounds, but it's, it's there enough to be a concern where I've realized over the years that there have been times, you know, I say I'll be, I'll be out witnessing and something comes up. Well, I can handle this one. I can handle this. Give me the, you know, give me this. Thing. I can tell them with this logic, this and that, and that instead of saying, Lord, give me the answer as I go speak to this person. Because one is moving out of the power of your own flesh and the other is trying to submit to the power of God. And so what we do is we, we, we fall on our strengths as well as our weaknesses. I say that all the time. And when we approach the issues of the things that are spiritual, how much more should we all be, be praying? There's nothing wrong with learning uh, all these doctrines and all these truths. But there's, I just, there's something. I just can't put my finger on it. There's something about the issue of having faith. There's something about faithing. There's something about it. And Again, it's not like the positive confessionists will say, yeah, you have faith in faith and you'll be good because faith can move mountains because you put your faith forward. And what they're doing is they're having faith in faith. And I don't want to have faith in faith. That's idolatry. I want to have faith in uh, who God is and his power to move. And I'm reminded again at this point of, of, um, of uh, George Mueller and the way he he was a pastor, and uh, then he had this inclination on his heart to start an orphanage. And what he did was he didn't tell anybody, and he didn't know if it was God or not. He didn't know if it was God or his own flesh. So what he did was he started praying about it. Lord, if, if it's from you, then increase it. If it's not from you, then decrease it. <clears throat> and so he would pray like this for weeks until uh, he said that this particular instance, he said that he would read as he was studying the word of God, there came a verse that was unusually enlightened to him or made powerful. And it had to do with the issue of helping the orphans and stuff like this. 
And he said it was with such force that he realized it was God doing this. And the interesting thing is that at that point, that his faith was in God, not in the circumstances, not in the people, not in what could be done with people, but in God and what God can do in all these things. And it's the object of his faith was the divine one. And so he would look to God and he would rest in God because it's part of the issue of the faith that was cultivated through this whole thing. If God is putting it upon your heart, then it's then the, the working out of it is his problem, not yours. So therefore, you can have a restful, confident faith in God. And I think it's that kind of restful, confident faith in God that we're supposed to be having as Christians that can only really be cultivated through experience, time, um, and, and developing that a lot. In fact, one quick story about him um, was uh, he was on a boat, and he, this is after he had left the, the orphanage uh, ministry work, and he was going around Europe uh, lecturing. He spoke German and English, I think, and uh, so he's lecturing, and um, they were socked in by fog in the bay, and so the ship he was on could not move and go get docked. So the captain was a Christian and said, I'm going to go to the cabin and pray that the Lord will lift the fog. And Mueller said, no, I'll go pray. And he went in and prayed within 20 minutes. It was gone. The fog was gone. I always thought that was interesting. No, I'll go pray. I think Mueller had developed such a close relationship with the Lord in prayer that he knew if he prayed, it would be taken care of. I mean, if you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and you do not doubt, it shall be done. I think that's where he was at. I think that's where we need to be. Yeah, I think this is why the church is so anemic and in our generation, why we don't see. I mean, you and I have talked about this. You've you've care very deeply about the church this is why I think that we've had such problems with the churches because we don't see people. And I'm, I'll be honest, I'm speaking to myself. Um, we don't see people that are spending the time of prayer. One of the more convicting quotes that I think of is from Martin Luther, that he used to pray for two hours every day, unless he had a busy day. Right. And he would make it three. Yeah. I, you know, for many of us to think that we're going to spend just, block out two hours a day would seem insane. Like we, we just, you know, would we have that kind of time? Uh, and yet that is something that, um, that becomes well, I, important. Get this, you know who Walter Martin was, right? Yes. Well, I had the privilege of meeting him a few times. And on one of these occasions, uh, we were at CRI when it was in Southern California and I was doing volunteer work to raise funds. And Dr. Martin came in and we were gathered as a group around a particular table to discuss a few things before we started doing hitting the phones and to pray. And a guy named Dan Schlesinger uh, was the, the guy in charge. And Dr. Martin walked in behind us 20 feet unexpectedly in the evening. And he said, hey, Dr. Martin, um, would you mind praying for us? He said, I'd love to. Well, it just so happened he put his hand on my left shoulder and he put his hand on somebody else's uh, right shoulder as he stood there. He started praying. 
And I remember very clearly that I stopped praying. I just started listening. I'd never heard prayer like that before. And I can't recall what it was he said, but I just remember going, wow, that's what prayer is. Yeah, and I remember being out in London at Charles Haddon Spurgeon's church. It's, uh, Dr. Masters is, the I think, who was there. And he had a regular habit of praying for, you know, pastoral prayer. And, you know, most pastors, they have a pastoral prayer. It's maybe a couple of minutes. And it's, everyone was standing during this prayer. And it was about 20 or 30 minutes of prayer. And he could have ended that prayer, said, amen, got home. And we would have been like, wow, what a great service. I mean, we just, all of us were like, he, we got, he got done praying and there was a team of us and we all looked at each other and we're just like, wow, that was just great. I mean, like take it back to what we talked with Finney, where Finney uses the music and all these guys use the music for something like that. Really biblically, what we get is when you're in a, in a position like that, like you're talking with Walter Martin, you get someone that prays like that. Right. Tozer was that way. Tozer actually, they, they said Tozer wouldn't come to his own church's prayer meetings because when he used to and he would pray, no one wanted to pray afterwards. They just wanted to sit and listen to him. Right. And hey, there's something to it. Yeah, there is. There's something and to it. You know, in I'll, the, I'll uh, tell you what I think is to it. I'll tell you, and it, I bring it to Tozer. Tozer's book, The Attributes of God, it, it goes to when you have a deep knowledge of who God is and his attributes and you meditate on that, I think that's what informs our faith. That is what really brings about a knowledge that God is great and not us. Right. Cause this goes to what you said earlier, kind of Matt, we, we kind of think we, well, I could solve this problem. I could do this and we don't depend on, on God. And so much of prayer is dependence on God, not, asking him to do things for us, but depending on him for answers. Yep. You know, there's a book called Scott's Worthies, and I've got a copy someplace. Um, and it's uh, dealing with the Presbyterian divines, uh, George Wisher, John Fleming, Charles Knox, I mean, Charles Knox, John Knox. And uh, in, there were, was it, there's one one story, I'm trying to remember, I thought it was two, but anyway, one I remember, um, that there was this man, oh yeah, two stories, that's right, one about uh, Scotland, um, and, but anyway, there was this man who, um, he was a, a man of prayer, and um, when he would say to his staff, he had uh, helpers at the, at the parsonage or whatever, he said, I'm going to go down to the garden, or go out to the garden and spend time with the Lord. What he meant was he's going to go out into the garden and spend time with the Lord. And people said they saw a second figure walking with him in this garden. And uh, I'm like, wow, you know, this is what they, you know, they said this. There's another man who I forgot their names, who had to arrange with his wife uh, the permission, make sure it was OK with her that he would spend eight hours a day in prayer. And she said, okay, because he wouldn't be available. 
And he did this for two years. And when he was done in two years, there was a revival in Scotland. Not saying it's a formula, but you know, you hear these guys like, oh my goodness. Well, you know, in, in uh, New York, um, Tremor, there's a church in Manhattan that they—that's what they decide to do. They actually, they actually encouraged all their members. They didn't have everyone, but they had a prayer that would start, I think, at five or six in the morning, and people could just come in. This is Monday through Friday. Come in before work, have a time of prayer. Then you go to work. Their their Wednesday night prayer meeting would be full, and it's nothing but prayer. I, we attended there once. Well, and it's there's no no sermon, no Bible study. It's just everyone gathers and they pray for like an hour, hour and a half. And it's you, you, there's got to be over a thousand people there. Um, yeah, we're going to be needing more of this, I think, as as uh, our history here unfolds. Yeah, I, I tend think- to agree. Yeah. On the subject of prayer, oh, I'm sorry. Um, there's a more simple thing for that, too, is if you think about a relationship that you have with any human being, if you don't talk with them often, your your relationship sort of dissipates. So I think prayer yeah. is good. And when you hear other people praying, you hear that guy that gives that amazing speech and you're so moved. And then you get up and I don't know, it's for me, it is, is like, uh, hey, God, uh, thanks. Uh, How's it going, dude? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we're all different. And that's how, you know, that, that difference in that communication, that's what makes us closer to God. That inner, that we're putting ourselves in that position to have that communication and increase that relationship. And it's also a form of validating him in our lives because, you know, unless we're crazy and have psychoses, at this point, we don't talk to unknown imaginary things in our lives. So, for me, it's it's it goes from the range of very simple like that all the way up to complex and increasing your faith because you know that he's there. Um, and then also, you know, I think some people get turned off by the fact that when I pray for the health of this person or pray for that or for myself, it's not answered always in what we expected or had wanted in prayer. And that I think frustrates people because, you know, you kind of have this uh, false idea that it's almost like Santa Claus, you know, you're getting your wishes granted and, but you know, God has so much greater plans for you in life that sometimes the answer to this prayer is not going to open bigger doors. And I think people need to remember that, that we're not going to have these wishes granted. Um, there's a bigger plan in motion and God's plan ultimately is going to be the best design there ever was. Yeah, obviously. And you bring something up that we, we could talk about as far as encouraging Christians in corporate prayer, because there is a time where in corporate prayer, you, you may have that person who is so eloquent in their speech and no one wants to follow after them. But let me give some advice right. talking prayer. Um, Father, God, Lord, the, that's not punctuation. You all know that person. I'm not, I don't have anyone specific in my mind that I'm saying this. And so none of the listeners think that I'm thinking of you, but you all know that person that gets up and prays and every other word is, oh, Lord, I just want, Lord, for you to come, Lord, and do this, Lord, and help my, my grandmother, Lord, and, you know, Father, do this. Father, you know, you know someone so is sick, and Father, you know, it's, it's annoying to listen to. 
Yeah. And and uh-huh. when you're praying, also, also the word just, just, just do this, just, just do that, and <laughs> it's really annoying. It, they should use the word justice, and then maybe some of those things wouldn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I wanted to bring it up because he mentioned it earlier, Matthew six seven. And when you pray, do not heap upon empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. I mean, I can understand long prayers as long as they're actually meaningful. But I see so many people just filling them with meaningless. Well, it's just to make them long that I I think that's wrong. It's almost like what Cliff was was, you know, pointed out in in the clip we were trying to play earlier was, you know, you can have you can have a nursery rhyme. And, you know, it's, it's a meaningless words and you can have that in prayer. You can also have people in corporate prayer that are using corporate prayer for gossip where they're, Mm -hmm. they're doing it as a prayer request. So it's okay. And really what they're doing is you pray for, you know, Bobby over there, you know, he was over at the bar, you know, there are certain things that you, (laughs) you know, that shouldn't be the case. You, You have things that prayer can be, abused um there are things that we could you know should be helpful things in in times of corporate prayer um you know not speaking so that you could be heard but but honestly praying is if you're the only one there it's just you and god because otherwise you're the pharisees at that point huh (laughs) yeah have you have you heard paul washer's worthless parent prayer meeting sermon no oh it's delicious Okay, so you'll drop a link in here for us? Uh, well, I'm on my phone, so I can't drop a link in the chat. But uh, if you look it up on Sermon Audio, Worthless Prayer Meeting, I love it, man. When he's talking about that, he said, just like what you were saying, he said, what we have now at prayer meetings, he's like, when I go in church and <clears throat> churches and try to get them to fire up prayer meetings, he's like, what you have is a 45-minute gossip session, five minutes of praying. Yeah. Yep. He's, like, well, he's like, what you should do is just everybody express their concerns while you're praying so that the spirit if the spirit moves the person to meet that need of that individual or can do that you know and he's like the other thing is he's like we spend more time uh praying about keeping saints out of heaven than than getting lost people in there yeah he's like we pray we spend more time praying for aunt betty's knee than we do for the lost person that lives next door to us and i'm sure that the speed demon Charlie Spine will have the link in in the in the <laughs> pretty quick. He'll find that, even though it's not on Carm. But yeah, I, I think that you know you bring up a good point. That's that's why I think John was saying earlier. You know, when I struggled with prayer many years ago, uh, my pastor said, "Pray God's word back to Him. Pray God's attributes back to Him." And that's when I developed the the card that that John referred to, which was. Basically, I just wrote out all the attributes of God, put some verses next to it. It's now that whole thing is in my phone. And, you know, let me pull up my app. Um, So here. So I don't know if you guys can see that. That's probably not going to show up too well. But, you know, that's my that's my prayer list. And, And you see, it's just the attributes of God. And so I I end up praying through uh, every day, 31 different attributes of God. And. So what does that do? What what does it do? Is this? It focuses us on who God is, the nature of God, before we're even getting into praying for Aunt Millie's knee and you know Uncle Jack's back, you know whatever. 
we 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 end up finding a lot of things, at least for me, I find a lot of the things that I thought I needed to pray about this brother or that sister or someone like that. And really, by the time I got done talking about who God is, I realized that I had a bad attitude. It was me that had a perception problem. So, so let's see. <laughs> I want to try to get to some of the questions. I know there's some in here, but before we do, uh, let's talk about sleep. A lot of people struggle with sleep. A lot of people have difficulties, as Matt does, falling asleep. I don't have this problem, but that would be because I have a my pillow, and my pillow can put my head down, and it doesn't matter. Every night that I go to bed, I know that that pillow is going to be the same firmness every night. Even when I wake up in the morning, it's still nice and firm. I love my pillow. You can love it as well. You can call one eight hundred. 944-5396. That's 1-800-944-5396. And order your MyPillow, and maybe you can start to sleep like me and not Matt. Oh, wait. <laughs> Matt, you have a MyPillow? I do. I love it. So why can't you sleep? I think it's something... I'm autistic. That's why, because I always... Andrew, uh, you never yeah. sleep. No, Matt knows I do. <laughs> Oh, he does. I remember we were uh, talking one night in the hotel, you know, he's in his bed. I'm getting ready for mine and I'm talking to him. I go, dude, how did you go to sleep so fast? He's out like that. I love my pillow. I, I am definitely good, more like you, Matt, than Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go through a ritual. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it is a good pillow. Seriously. We're not just saying it. Um, we had, there are three sizes. I, I remember we got one. I tried the big one and it wasn't right for me. And I ended up with a smaller one. Um, but I, I'm serious. <laughs> if, if it's not there, I don't want to, you know, it's like, okay, where is it? Where is it? I, you know, that's honest, man. It's, it's weird. It's, it's good bill. And, and we've heard from some of the, the listeners here who have gotten out and they, I've, I got some emails from, from some listeners and <laughs> they said, we didn't believe you. But we tried it, and you're right. Yeah. So it, is. it just fits right. Yeah. So let's get to Kat. She's uh she actually has a question, and but it's not her question. She says she's got a question from her husband who's home and listening. So yeah, go figure, ahead. right? <laughs> no, yeah. So he's here. He's actually looking at me. Right. I see you. I see you. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're somewhat familiar with, well, he is more so than I, a doctrine of depravity, all that stuff. So he wanted me to ask about Tulip and if Matt could explain a little bit more about Tulip and, um, you know, not just for us, I guess, for other listeners and, and whatnot. Um, what exactly is Tulip? It's a nice flower. I, I like tulips, but I prefer roses. Yeah. Um, are nice. It'll last longer. Pink jasmine all day long. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I'll try that. Um, but theologically speaking, it's an acronym, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, um, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so uh, total depravity simply says that we, uh, every human being is touched by sin in every part of what he is, heart, soul, mind, body, everything. And as a result of that, then uh, he is incapable of coming to God on his own. And I can quote the references, but I won't. And so that's total depravity. So total depravity also leads to total, and it's, it's not really the right way to say it, total inability, but it means total inability 
to be able to come to Christ of your own volition because a totally depraved individual's will is enslaved to sin. And I got plenty of verses for that. So you is unconditional election. And what that means is God does not look into the future to see who's going to pick him under different circumstances and then decides to elect or choose that person for salvation. That would violate James 2, 2 through 4, which deals with the issue of, of not showing partiality. God doesn't do that. In other words, he doesn't look into an individual to see anything of value in the individual and then say based upon what he knows that person can or, or won't do or whatever it is. Limited atonement uh, says that um, the blood of Christ is sufficient to save all, you know, his, his infinite value. But legally speaking, he only bore the sins of the elect. So he did not bear the sin of everybody who ever lived, but only the elect of God. And uh, it's called limited atonement, where we Calvinists limit the scope of the atonement. Arminians limit the power because they say that the um, atonement is for everybody, but it doesn't automatically cleanse. You have to apply it. And it, there's some problems there, but I won't get into that. So limited atonement. And uh, sometimes it's called definite atonement. And then uh, I for irresistible grace. And what that means is that at the time of regeneration is not dealing with the issue of, um, hold on. Okay, potential spam. Might be my wife. She's not feeling well today. Uh, so at the time of regeneration, a sinner cannot successfully resist the grace of God as he brings that person into a, a saving state, a regenerate state. That's what irresistible grace means. It's often misunderstood to uh, think that it, it means that um, uh, irresistible grace means that you can you can resist God's grace or you can't resist in your whole life all kinds of gracious things. That's not what it means. It only refers to the issue of regeneration and then uh, perseverance of the saints. That uh, when you're paid, your sins are paid for. When you're regenerated, you will persevere to the end of your life, and you will not lose your salvation. We are eternally secure in him. That's what it is. That's, that's TULIP. That's what it stands for. Ooh, thank you very much. And it's all biblical. I love that part. Yes, it is. And you could get, if you want, Matt has on Amazon a whole list of his notes. Okay. So Calvinism's, yeah. Calvinism notes, I think is what's called. Mm -hmm. uh, outlines on Calvinism or notes on Calvinism. I forgot which one. Yeah, I, I, it might be outlines. I'll have to, I, I could check. The other thing you could do is he's got a website called Calvinist Corner dot uh, mm -hmm. com, I believe, right? Dot com or dot org. Forget dot com. Dot com. I'm looking at it right now. So that would be a good place you can you can see a lot. And, and this is on sometimes people ask. There's not a lot on CARM about Calvinism. On right. purpose, you know, because Calvinism is, you know, Matt is has a whole website devoted for the Calvinism, but you know, he's got the apologetics to answer apologetic questions. So, yeah, right. You know, I defend Calvin. I on Carmel defend, um, I'll defend uh, eternal security, and I'll openly defend that because. Uh, if you can lose your salvation, then the, the logical necessity is you keep it by being good. And that, of course, is, is a problem. But right. um, So I try and keep my Calvinism off of CARM, but on Calvinist Corner. And I just put a link in there. Uh, did Jesus teach TULIP? 
And so oh, I you. extracted some scriptures that I think support the idea. Yeah, Jesus did teach it. So you guys can check it out if you want. Love it. Thank you so much. Sure. Okay. I love teaching Reformed theology. The the next one up is Larry had some questions for you. Sure. It's good to have Larry back. We haven't seen him for a very long time. Good to see you. Wow. Can you hear me? What? Yes. Can. Oh, perfect. So, <clears throat> so I just have a question in regards um, with Matt. So what is your thoughts in regards to the regular principle of worship? I prefer the, the Lutheran regular principle over the Reformed one. The Lutheran regular principle uh, says that you can do anything unless Scripture forbids it. The Calvinist one says you can only do what the Scripture commands. Right. And so I like the one, uh, I like the Lutheran one. I just do. I'd like the Lutheran one better because um, I want to be able to use uh, guitars and drums and slide shows and, uh, you know, and overhead projectors and things like that to yeah. be able to to aid in that. And uh, I don't have any problem with that at all. Colossians 3 talks about spiritual songs or is it for, talks about spiritual songs, hymns. And so I like it. You know, yeah. So you like it, but is that biblical? <laughs> but but is it biblical? Yeah, I think the Lutheran one is more biblical. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I you know actually I I can't tell I can't say that because I, I want to find scriptures that would support that view. What I do find is the command to worship God with uh, you know singing speaking to each other with psalms, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing praises to one another. And so, you know, I think, I just think that the Presbyterian uh, view of the regular principle is just too narrow. Yeah. Um, I just do. It's the only thing in Presbyterianism I really don't really agree with, but that's okay, you know. But uh, it's just too narrow. We can only do it this way. Uh, a professor of mine in seminary believed in only singing the Psalms. And I raised my hand. And I said, well, then that means you can't say the word Jesus in your, your worship. Mm-hmm. And he says, yeah, that is a problem. He admitted it flat out, but, yeah. but he still held to that position. Um, I, said, I don't know. I just, I like more freedom in worship. I mean, maybe it's just me. I don't like hymns. They, if I, you know, a church full of hymns, I, I won't go back because <laughs> I can't, I can't survive in it. It's spiritually. Yeah. It's just me. I'm not knocking them. It just doesn't speak to me. So I like to have the praise, you know, you stand up and raise your hands to the Lord and just enjoy presence and worship of, of one another. Ah, oh, it's nice. So that's why I like the Lutheran one, because right. it gives me more freedom. So are you fairly um, conscious of the the theological, um, I guess, uh, premise of any songs that are sung? Yes. Oh, yeah. One of the things I want to do, and I started a little to test, um, is to analyze Christian song lyrics. And um, so <laughs> what got me on that is I, I actually like Hillsong music. I like a lot of Hillsong and Bethel music. I'm sorry, but I do. It's beautiful. Now, um, some of it is pretty. You, all right, no, let me clarify for a sec, Matt. Are you saying you like the music <clears throat> or are you saying you like the lyrics? Or, I like the music. Yeah, the that's what I thought. The harmony, the beauty, the melody. I love that. Uh, yeah, 
and and personally, I believe that the Lord is working through a lot of them, right. and that the Lord is there in a lot of them. Um, I think we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and there are heresies there, and there certainly are. But there, I think there's something about the free will expression of adoration to God, uh, where He indwells the the presence of His praise, but it's been mixed with a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. And so deciphering that is tr- problematic. So I'll listen to some um, some of the praise music, you know, of all kinds. And I and I work in the house or I'm doing stuff. I'll just put it on. And I have a like almost 40 songs in this one thing on Pandora that I'll listen to oh, praise songs. Not one is a hymn, incidentally. And um, so you know, I'll just enjoy the, the presence. And um, I was gonna say something. What was it? Dang it. Oh, yeah. So in one of the songs, um, you know, God, blah, 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 I give you permission. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Well, what kind of crap is that? You know, and uh, that's what motivated me to go, hey, wait a minute, I should do a thing on on analyzing lyrics. Yep. Um, Well, you know, there's a fine line because, Matt, you love heresy. So I know I got a problem. (laughs) But but there is a thing. Look, I this is why I have an article on striving for eternity about music. I'm not a musician. I don't listen to music. I listen to preaching and and podcasts and stuff like that. Okay, I have no music on my phone at all. So, wow, that's you're not you're not normal. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> you don't you don't need to know that to know I'm not normal. There's plenty of other reasons. But dang, you know. I'm I'm with Andrew on this one. <laughs> oh, now we got two ab- abby normal people. <laughs> Um, but here's here's the thing. I think that music has a, a potential danger in the fact that what people focus on is the lyrics. Okay, what do the lyrics say? Are they biblical? And they think if the if the lyrics are biblical, then it's okay. Yet music, so we end up seeing in scripture when it, we have our our intellect, our thinking, our wi- our uh, emotions, and then our our will, our our volition what you end up realizing that the the thinking is the first line of defense against sin. And if so, if something can get past your thinking and get to your emotions, it's easier to give into the sin to in the, in the, in your will. Therefore music can has a potential danger because the music does affect emotions and you can have great lyrics with music and that music is bringing upon bringing out certain emotions that you're not thinking about it also can have great music as like you're saying hillsong bethel that they put great music to heretical wording and people don't even realize they're singing heresy right and it's because it's get it had, they feel good about it, and because they have that good feeling, they think the words are good, and this is how some of this heresy is coming into the church. So there is a danger, I think. There. Oh yeah, there is absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. I'm a Reformed Baptist. We actually just sing the Psalms, which uh, I don't, I'm not against singing hymns, other song, songs, and so forth. But uh, obviously, there is no danger in singing God's word. Right. And it's safe to sing the Psalms. But then, like I said earlier, you can't sing about Jesus, you know, specifically his name. Yep. And and that's a disadvantage there. I call that sola hymnola or no, sola <laughs> somnola. And then there's sola hymnola, you know. 
And then I, one of the one of the criticisms of praise music is they'll say one thing over and over and over again, and that's not biblical. I go, you mean like holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Yeah. And he's the funny thing all the time. Is, is, is in church they'll say, okay, we're going to sing the psalm. It is to the tune of you know X Y Z hymn. I'm like, well, if you grew up in this church, how would you know that tune? Right. Well, well, yeah. my, my issue is they have to reinterpret that songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's like hymns, hymns, and hymns. When you a lot of these yeah. people that they do ex- <laughs> exclusive psalmody, That's it's right. like you, yeah, just, I, I believe the uh, Reformed Baptist position is that uh, those are just different types of psalms because obviously when the oh, man hymns didn't really? exist, worship songs didn't exist, so it was just the different types of psalms. You really say that, huh? Yep. I've never heard that before. So let me look at this. Psalms, obviously, that's there in the Greek. Uh, psalmois and hymns is humnois and spiritual songs. Oh, no way. That's interesting. Yeah, so hymns Nemotikos. and spiritual songs, what did that uh-huh. mean at the point in that his- in history? Yeah. Um. I'm looking at the word song in the Greek, in a lexicon. Come on, give me. Come on. Oh, you slime ball. Uh, why would it work? Oh, I see it does. Okay. A particular melodic pattern with verbal content. They said facing the throne and sang a new song. Revelation 14.3. It's there too. It's getting, it's getting interesting. Okay, I'm going to do a little so study. We, we have someone that just came in that had a question. I was going to mm-hmm. ask you the, the question for them, but uh, someone dropped out to make room. So, uh, Ral, I think is how your name may be pronounced, um, but I've unmuted you, or I've, I've brought you in. If you can unmute yourself. Let's see. Maybe I can. Yeah. I'm going to mute it. Okay. So go ahead and ask your, your question there. I see your lips moving, but I don't hear you. We don't hear you. Um, and it looks like you're turned up on this end. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask your question. If you can look in the chat while you try to fix that, you could check questions in there. I'm going to read the question that you had so at least Matt can give an answer because we have about 15, 20 minutes left in the show. Um, so the question that you had, and what you could do is play with your mic to see if you can get it working. But his question was, do you think that God used a reasonable slash logical process to decide our morality? No. <laughs> and I know, Matt, you weren't here at the beginning when I talked about morality and, and presuppositions that I have. But well, where do we get explain. from Morality is a reflection of the character of God. It's not arrived at or decided as if it, it was a time when certain morality was not real or was not a decided thing in the mind of God. So to say that God used a reasonable, logical process means that there, it implies or could be made to, to, to mean that there is a system of logic to which God himself must appeal. That would be uh, heretical to, to say that. Uh, logic exists because it's a reflection of the mind of God. And since God is eternal, then the, the processes of, of the mind of God are also eternal. The morality of God is also eternal and never variant because it's based on his eternal immutable character. Therefore, when it comes to us, 
then he is simply revealing the truth of moral things. There's not a logical process to arrive and decide which is and is not moral in God, because that would further imply God has to learn and make decisions about what will and will not be something that's good. And that's another problem. So the, the question has many uh, problems woven into it. So killing is wrong because God doesn't kill. Um, you know, God always, uh, when he executes somebody, it's killing. But uh, killing is not wrong. Murder is wrong. Murder is the unlawful taking of life. Killing is not wrong. And uh, so if someone breaks into my home, and may it never happen, but I have to take that person's life to save the life of my wife and, and family and stuff like that, then it's not judicially wrong or morally wrong. Um, and so murder, God can never murder. But the reason it's wrong for us to do it is because when we sin, we sin against God. And the wages of sin is death, separation from God. So all sin is against God. And so therefore, all people um, um, are under the subjection of God as a, to be executed. He has the right to execute all people because all people have sinned. And so it can never be murder. But what we're doing when we murder somebody is we are going against the revealed law of God. And he has revealed to us what aspects of killing are permissible and which are not. Now, we can't, I don't think I could, haven't tried, connect the logical dots. But that's not an issue that I have to do. God has simply revealed the issue um, to do that. Is it right to execute all people judicially for God? It would be judicially correct and proper to execute all people because all people have broken the law and all people deserve death. So there'd be nothing wrong uh, with that. Yeah, even babies. We are born by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. And the obligation of all living beings, uh, particularly, uh, you know, humans, is to love God with all their heart, their soul, their mind. And if the babies can't do that, um, then they would have a judgment upon them. But then we get into the doctrine of federal headship, the representation of Adam for all people, and that in Adam all died. What that means is when he died, he became sinful in his nature, and then all descendants of him also inherit a sinful fallen nature and the necessity of the fallen nature is separation from God. So um, even babies. Okay. But personally, I believe that God is merciful to all babies. and I believe they all go to heaven. That's just my opinion. I can't believe it is right to execute all babies like you. Okay. You believe whatever you want, Raul. But um, let me ask you, Raul, just type it in. Are you a Christian or an atheist or what? Just curious. Just type anyway, you know what while he's typing that in, let me let me just say, and I think this is where he's having the issue is, if if God did absolutely nothing, if God didn't come to Earth to, and die on a cross as a payment of sin, every single human being would rightly go to hell. That's what we deserve. We break His law. Right. So he says, right. starting his own new religion. Who is Raw? That that's what starting he, my own new religion. Okay, so uh, Raw, yeah. I'm just curious, what are you? Um, you're not a Christian if you're starting your own religion. And it's to say that you're either serious, which means you're not a Christian, or you're just joking. And so that's why I still need to understand 
you know, what you are, what your position is, that can better cater your answers. I don't believe we can assume that all babies go to heaven. Um, uh, that is in opposition to John MacArthur's position. Uh, that's just my position. I just assume that's the case. And um, I can never be objective because I've had to bury a, a baby, my own baby. And I just long ago just gave up trying to be objective about it because I, I'm just not not able to be. And that's just where I'm at. Well, I I think, I, you can't. I mean, look, Matt, you and I take different positions on this, and we both had to. Your child actually survived outside of the womb. Mine didn't, but we both had lost a child. Um, I think he, we can be objective, but it's hard. And but I also think that as as humans, I mean, when we, I think that people throw out the the child of you know what about a baby because they have this false idea that a child is somehow sinless and innocent and that's the question you know is the child sinless and innocent or is that child i mean the first act it does out of the womb act in selfishness and crying out in selfishness i like how vody bakum puts it you know that's it's a you know that you, you that child, if he's eighteen years old, would rip your head off, right? It, it's I think that's why he calls it a viper in a diaper. It's the, the the child is selfish and breaking God's law. It's not innocent. No no child is innocent, and that's the thing. Yeah, no child. Yeah, we're by nature children of wrath. That's true. So, Rawl, let me help you uh, create a a religion. Okay, you want to create one? Want want me to help you? Want me to help you create one? Would you like that? Because you talked about the moral issue. So why don't we develop a moral uh, code? You want to do that? It's hard. It's hard while he's he's trying to type in. Uh, yeah. He says, yes, immoral. are not evil. Didn't say they were evil. So you see, well, see, one of the things that happens a lot when I dialogue with people is they, they, I don't mean this in a derogatory, insulting way, but they don't listen to what I say. They think they hear what I say, but I don't. I never said children were evil. But um, so, uh, uh, well, hold on, Andrew. We're gonna. You'll see what I'm gonna do, Andrew. So, Raul, um, what would be you know offer a a moral absolute that we would have to have in your new religion? Uh, let just. Um, there could be execution for the purpose of deliverance into salvation too. But that's a whole other topic. We get it way off. But I, I really want to talk about the issue of the morality. Um, could you offer a moral absolute that would have to be true for everybody in your religion? And when he types stuff, Matt, I'll read what he says so folks can know. Oh, you're reading it. Okay. Yeah. So, so he said, uh, we don't know moral absolutes. We need to be able he typed too much. We need to be able to figure out moral conundrums. Okay, so we don't need a moral absolute. So then there's no absolute moral truth. That means that all morals that are subjective, which means my subjective preference and your subjective preference about what is moral um, can differ. And that's a conundrum. Now, what do we do since there is no standard by which we can judge whether anybody is right or wrong morally? So your position then would not just lead to a conundrum, but an impossibility. 
because you could not ascertain if anything was true or was not true or excuse me, true morally true or morally good or morally bad. You could not do that. You don't have any standard by which you could judge anything. And then all you would be offering is, is nothing more than your personal preferences. And if that's all you're offering, then why is it that we should even consider those to be valid? Okay, here's my moral absolute for critique. Quote, an action is moral or immoral to the degree that it fulfills or denies the fulfillment of the needs of the entities involved to the degree those needs are needed. Um, uh, that's just a whole bunch of doesn't make sense written between quotes. Okay. Um, it just, think about it. Uh, it this, the sentence is not coherent. And the reason it's not coherent, and I'll show you why. An action is moral or immoral to the degree. So now you're saying there's a degree of morality or immorality based on an action that it fulfills or denies the fulfillment, fulfills the fulfillment of the needs of the, of, uh, the entities. What entities? Cats, dogs, uh, what? To the degree, which you have another thing, to the degree that those those are needed. So what's the things that are needed? The needs of the entities are needed. It's just, um, it just doesn't make any sense. Your, your statement has no coherence. So the point I'm trying to make, Raul, is that who are you to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Does not God have the right to, to make one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He says, how do you figure out your morals? It's easy. I just read the Bible. See, my morals are not based upon me. My morals are based upon the revealed word of God. And so when God reveals himself and the morals that are reflecting his character, and he reveals them in the word, then I try and be humble. And the humility is manifested by submitting to the truth of the, of the Lord God. It becomes arrogance when you say that the revealed word of God is not the standard of morals. I will judge morals myself. That is actually a form of arrogance, which is immoral. So the, the conundrum for you, I'll use your word, the conundrum for you now is that you are advocating a moral standard based on the immorality of your position. The immorality of your position is that you are being acting in an arrogant manner to say that you are the one who decides what is morally right or wrong for people. And that is truly arrogant. Only the creator of the universe who knows all things has that right to reveal what that is. I create new plant species. How can you tell me if it is moral to create, say, a new species from a cactus? You don't create a new species. What you do is you use the existing genetic information that would be there inside of a living organism. And then what you do is you manipulate what doesn't belong to you. The information belongs to God. It is his. He's the author of the information. Just as I'm the author of my book, the book belongs to me. But uh, for you to take life and manipulate it and say you're the creator is another form of arrogance. So Rawl. Um, I think you're really screwed up. He says manipula uh, manipulation already uh, exists. Materials is not, not creation. creation. 
well then why are you using the word create to create means to bring into existence out of nothing but if you have um, plants and you manipulate them genetically then you're simply not creating you're altering he says i create new species uh via He's got polypoidal using meiotic spindle inhibitors. They do not cross fertility back with the original. Well, you can do that if all you want. Um, that means you're working the cellular level. But here's the thing. You're borrowing from God's world to do this. You don't create new species via, you know, and if you define speciation as the ability not to, to uh, cross uh, breed, and that's the, the uh, speciation wall or divider, well, then what you're doing is, is you're saying you create something and create a new species, but you really, it's, it's really not that. Um, you know, if I were to learn how to manipulate something and turn a gene off so that uh, it can't breed with another something, hey, I create a new species. Look at me. That's, that's not it. See, the issue is that the information in the, the cell that you're manipulating, the genetic level, um, that belongs to God. It's well, what you're doing is immoral. You have to understand something. All actions by us are moral actions. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, that includes the direct decree and the indirect decree of God, which means that all things that occur, occur by the will of God. And since everything that God does is morally right, therefore, everything we do is connected to God in his decrees, and therefore, everything we do has a moral value to it. So what you're doing is immoral. And the reason it's immoral is because you're not doing anything for the glory of God. You're doing it for your own arrogant gain and manipulation of what he has. So you are being immoral from the very beginning in this. That's what's going on there. What does the Bible teach about polyploiding? It uh, occurs in nature. Well, what I would say is that God provided the necessary information for uh, speciation and subspeciation through microevolution, through the reduction or altering of the allele frequency. That's what I would say. And it's just something that already is there within the gene pool that God created. And you should be familiar with the issue of epigenetics, which clearly is problematic for the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution, because epigenetics talks about the activating and deactivating of certain genes based upon environmental pressures. Well, this is because God had put the information there. And uh, how do you calculate the moral value of an action? Well, you go to um, Amazon. They have what's called a moral calculator. And then you can just add hate plus killing equals, and then you can come down with murder. I think that's, you know, I'm kidding, of course. Um, I do not make the world better and my life better. So is it morally biblic moral biblically? You do make the world better and my life better. Uh, what you're doing is immoral because what you're doing is not for the glory of God. And so, therefore, you are immoral. It doesn't mean that there can't be some incidental benefits on a temporal level for people. An atheist could discover you know, an antibiotic that could kill certain really bad uh, germs. And that, that's, that happens. But he's not glorifying God, and so we could not say on the divine level that his action is a moral action. What we would say is that uh, on the human level, people would say it's good. But on a human level, everything's subjective, so goodness only is defined tautologically. 
that's not a great word, but what it, it means is if it aids in survivability, then it's good. Well, what is good? That which aids in survivability. It's a tautology. It's a circular. It doesn't provide any information of morality, only of survivability. So if what you're talking about is making the world better, how do you know what's better? Because someone lives longer? How do you know it's, it's better? Because they live longer. Is living long, longer better? Yes. Why? Because this means they're living longer. It doesn't answer any questions. You're just sitting there and you're having a problem bridging what's called the is-ought barrier. The is-ought barrier. Let's say that you have a drug that, that uh, enables someone to live another 50 uh, years uh, due to um, the ability to resist all kinds of germs. He lives 50 years longer average. Is that good? Well, I would say maybe, maybe not. But we'd have to have a standard by which we could measure goodness. What would happen is that people said, well, the standard is that we average, we live an average of 75 years, and now we live an average of 125, and since the standards have been exceeded, therefore it's good based on that standard. But what makes that standard the right standard of a moral judgment? The problem with the secularists is that they adopt what's called pragmatism. Morality is developed out of pragmatism. It works, so therefore it's good. Well, how do you know it's good? Because it works. This kind of circular thinking doesn't accomplish anything. It's not a moral issue. So we get back to the absolutes of morals. What we're finding out is that if you know who God is, and apparently you don't, nothing you can do is morally pleasing to God, and that's what matters. So what you have to do is hope that your gene manipulation will only benefit uh, well it will only benefit people in some areas and then you can just pat yourself on the back and say therefore i declare that it is good and what that is is another form of arrogance manifesting Oliver, i can't keep up right it's okay so what if you heap 50 more years of damnation on yourself yeah so matt let's um because we're at the end of the show. I'm trying to see from Vincent if there's uh, going to be an after show or not. I uh, haven't heard. But what I want to do, Roll, is if after we go off the air, I don't want you to leave. What I want to try to do is help you get your mic working so that uh, maybe next week we can get you in earlier and we can make sure that you could be heard. <laughs> that would be really good. Um, you know, I mean, it'd be great if Matt's mic worked as well as yours right now. Just saying. <laughs> no, but but let's let's see if we can get your your mic up and work, and we could do some of the technical stuff after. And um, no, I can't hear you now. I see I see you trying. Um, so, uh, Vincent, uh, you're still here. Is, is there going to be an after show? Yeah, give me a second. I'll I'll get one up in like thirty seconds. Okay. Maybe a minute. So the after show is put on by the council. The council is a group of guys, reformed guys that are on. Uh, online they are in discord a lot having great discussions doing some evangelism and they like to do the after show basically the after show is for folks that want to jump in there we give the folks who are here the link so you can get over there and get in and it's less moderated and so basically you know it's more opportunities to speak there's no kind of set topics it can go all over the place they go for about an hour and maybe eventually that'll become a podcast just saying i know uh, john wants that Hello. so <laughs> speaking of podcasts though i should mention that this uh this what you're Hello. watching right now live will become a podcast and you can find it on the christian podcast community that is one of our podcasts it's called apologetics live thunk of that huh who would have thunk that anyway 
the you can search for apologetics live or if you want to get all of the podcasts that are in the christian podcast community you can actually search for christian podcast community and get all of them uh right now we have the rap report theology answers uh, apologetics live but we have coming soon very soon theology gals and uh didache you say well i haven't heard of didache didache with justin peters it is a brand new uh one that is coming. Um, and then we have an, a podcast about podcasting that'll start in January. And if you have podcasts, if you are a podcaster, Roland, Roland is uh, putting up a thing that says, thanks for folks who don't, who, who won't be able to see Let me uh, you put your note back up and I'll uh, present you to everyone. So everyone can see your note while I talk besides you're better looking than me anyway. So, <laughs> So uh, if if you are a Christian podcaster and you want to uh, get some help podcasting, you want to get into podcasting, you have a podcast, you just want to get a larger audience, we're going to be opening up sometime in January in a, in a limited way, but then February, March, we're going to be opening up more podcasts so that folks who want to get to podcasting, this is a community. It is not a network. There's a difference uh, with a network you host on them. They are the ones that that kind of run everything. We are basically, if you're a network, you can be part of, with us. We're going to be Christians that are working together to promote one, one another, uh, help one another. It's a crazy concept, I know. But, <laughs> but we don't have to all agree with one another either. I mean, we can even have Matt on there. Yeah. But... <laughs> Huh. <laughs> the sigh <laughs> from Matt, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so that's on coming. We got um, we're gonna see um, Matt is I think I think with the Karma's working on some on some new uh books for the schools. So hopefully, your the schools that you've had for years. How, how long ago have you did you write those? I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. Yeah. I need to go through them and revamp them just to do it, but they need to be a new venue, a better venue and stuff like that. Yeah. So that, I think that's one of the things in possibly in the works and, but for folks, you can go to CARM and be part of those schools. Those have a cost with them. Uh, we have a school, but, but we, we say, to, I say it over the radio too, you know, we use them to help pay the bills, but if people can't afford them and really want them, just let us know and we'll give them to you for free. Yeah. So another and so you have the CARMs you have the CARM will have some overlap with what we have at Striving for Attorney Academy. Uh now ours are free to watch. They're on YouTube. We both have things on systematic theology, and it'd be good to take both because we both have two different views of theology and, and it'll give you a difference, give you a better rounding of, of the scriptures. Uh, one thing's radical, but we don't know what. Say <laughs> that again, John? One of them is heretical, but we don't know which one, though. Oh, yeah, we do, Matt, um, where he disagrees with me. <laughs> he'll say me, where he'll say mine, where, where it disagrees with him. No, but I'm just being more humble, taking the high road, that's all. <laughs> For a change. <laughs> you were going to be home after last week when you ripped into me like the entire two hours. Um, but we I have, did. Matt has <laughs> logic. You have a class on logic. We have a class on how to interpret the Bible and world religions. So that you're going to get some differences there. Uh, they're a good source for folks to to get uh, some teaching. So 
Um, with that, I, I encourage you to check those things out. I'm going to drop the link here for folks who want to join the the uh, um, the hangout. Um, let me get this. The, the council hangout. I'm going to drop that link in here. And so I'll give Matt, I'll give you a minute to get over there before I drop that link onto YouTube. And so folks, we, we appreciate you coming. I hope that you find some value in this. If you did, would you share it, share it with others? Some people like the video format. Some people like the audio format. So uh, usually by t- tomorrow, Saturday, Monday, something like that, this will, be out in podcast form and you'll be able to pick that up and it just it's a matter of how quickly we can get the show notes and everything done with it and the audio convert you know editing done try to get it out quickly so usually by monday this is an an audio that you can then share with folks if you subscribe to apologetics live so we thank you guys for joining for listening for having your questions uh roll don't don't take off so we can try to work out your technical things i hope we can get you in next week Folks, if you have questions, you have things that stump you, that's what this is for. It is a training for folks to be able to learn better uh, apologetics and also for people that just want to disagree with Matt uh, or I. We don't mind that. We we can disagree and still do it respectfully. So uh, until next week, strive to make today an eternal day for the glory of God.